Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I started my business via to help women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guests, Danielle Weisberg and Carly Zakin to our show today. Danielle and Carly co-founded The Skim, a digital media company dedicated to giving women the information they need to navigate life's most important decisions. Since hitting send on the first daily Skim email over a decade ago, Carly and Danielle have cultivated a trusted community that reaches more than 12 million women. As our audience has matured, so has a skim, evolving beyond a singular newsletter into an award-winning ecosystem that includes dedicated newsletters in money, wellness, parenting, and shopping, a career podcast, an in-house creative agency, and a commerce arm that performs at three times the industry standard. Danielle and Carly both grew up with a love for journalism and storytelling. The two met after a summer studying abroad in Rome and reconnected after graduation when they were both working in New York City, where they eventually became roommates trying to make it in the media industry. They were both news junkies at heart and quickly realized there was an opportunity to change the way media was consumed and create an outlet that provided its audience with bite-sized and easily digestible news. With $4,000 between both of them, they decided to quit their job and launch the skim. In this week's episode, Danielle and Carly share their love for storytelling, what it means to start their own digital media company literally from their couch, and why they thought it was a much bigger risk to not pursue the skim versus pursuing it. They also share with us what it's like to work with a co-founder and the benefits of having one, ways they applied grassroots marketing in the early days of business when they had zero funds, and how they intentionally thought about growth and monetization. We also get the inside scoop on how they fostered an intensely engaged community through their Skimbassador program, how they balance their relationship as friends and co-CEOs, and what goes into producing great content. Danielle and Carly open up about their biggest mistakes during their journey, how they dealt with rejection when fundraising early on, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Danielle and Carly. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes. Well, there's a lot to talk about that we're going to cram in an hour. So I'm going to jump right in. But before we go into your story of the skim, I actually want to talk more about both your lives prior as journalists. What were you both working on at the time? And what did you like and not like in your career then? So Carly and I both grew up wanting to work in journalism. I should say, I think what really drew us to that world was the idea of storytelling. I think that evolved, you know, was it journalism? For me, it was, was it going into politics? Carly loved documentaries and would pretend to be the next kind of Katie Couric while waiting for school to start. And I will embarrass her too by saying she started her own zine back in the day. Um, I had one too. Don't, don't worry, Carly. (laughs) I, I never did. For those of you that don't know what it is, it's basically what it sounds like. (laughs) 
And, but we, we really just grew up loving kind of all different forms of media and storytelling. And we actually met studying abroad uh, in college in Rome. And then we both went to work for different parts of NBC News. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about my experience and then throw it to Carly. I think that what I learned that I loved about working in news is two things. I really loved being part of a team. And there is such a camaraderie. And Carly and I talk about it like on big moments, whether it's an election night, you know, we'll kind of like, we're usually together, but if we're not, we're texting or have like, you know, the group thread open and slacking and just that feeling of watching something happen in real time and having different people that like your job is to process that information together and make sense of it for a specific audience. I was also thinking kind of this weekend how much I love being forced to be on a deadline. I am really organized in my personal life. Like I'm kind of like I live by my calendar. I think months ahead. And professionally, I'm much more of a procrastinator. I do really well when it's like you have one hour to complete this task. And I'm like, great, time box it, I'll get it done. And so I feel like I really learned those things about myself. Things that I I struggled with, honestly, I love being able to think about different opportunities. And I think in news business, we started at a time when like digital was a word, right? Like when people were like, oh, you're on the digital team and it wasn't quite the same as like the more kind of glorified broadcast team. And what that means is is really that we both, I, I think we're hungry for an opportunity to see more ahead of us. That doesn't mean that we were necessarily like jumping at the chance to give up any um, kind of modicum of stability and and start something at, at 25. And I think I also really love taking something, diving into it, kind of becoming a, a like a real geek about something and then explaining it. And there was a time when that was like, you know, what was going on kind of in an omnibus spending bill. And now it's about so much of what makes up our experience as, as women living in this country every day. Yeah. For me, it's funny. Like when Danielle talks about the deadline thing, my heart like literally races because we're the opposite. I love planning ahead for work and I hate planning ahead for my personal life. So for me, what I really loved was I love puzzles. Like I'm literally sitting here talking to you with like the puzzle I'm working on in front of me. Like I always have puzzles around and I worked in documentaries and I worked um, kind of long, longer form programming and features for NBC News. And I loved the puzzle of like finding the person we had to interview, figuring out like going through old archival footage of like, oh, like if I, you know, can get this angle, then I can get that. Like I was just really good at that and like really good at chasing down different interview subjects and, you know, getting footage that hadn't been shown before and things like that. I loved that. I loved being like in the place, in the proximity of the action. Like we both worked at 30 Rock and I swear like my dream would be to like be the superintendent of that building. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I, you know, I loved walking the halls and like, you're like, there's Tom Brokaw, like there's Brian Williams, you know, there's Hoda. That was, you know, I was just like, this is incredible. Like the history here is just amazing. I think that what I didn't love other than the deadlines, you know, and it's why I kind of left breaking news, which is what I went into first. What I didn't love was um, I felt like I, without knowing I was being entrepreneurial, like I felt like I like really understood like how to market the shows that I was working on 
or what the kind of like business opportunities for partnerships or whatever could be done to to make you know those programs even better. And anytime I tried to kind of do more or stretch my skill set, I felt like I always hit some sort of obstacle. And mostly the feedback was like, because it's not your lane or it's not what we do. And there's a whole department for that and a whole other side of the building. And I remember, you know, you get like rating numbers and there would be town halls. And I was like, why is everything so, you know, disjointed where if you just thought about it of like how everything helps one another, like we could be so much more efficient in everything. And I like couldn't figure out how to do that as a 25 year old in a huge behemoth of a company. But ultimately, like when I look back, like what bugged me, like that is what bugged me. And that is why I loved having a smaller company. It's so interesting because, you know, like you mentioned, you guys, I think in different ways were showing these entrepreneurial skill sets. You didn't know at the time that it was necessarily that. But I also read in another interview, you guys would always, you know, through the years of your friendship before the skim, would kind of spitball different ideas and stuff. So I want to hear more about that in your relationship. And did you ever anticipate that one day one of those ideas would turn into a business? So we didn't spitball different ideas. One idea, which was the skin. We just didn't have a name for it. And it's funny because it's really a testament to like that we were so on the same page and like the vision of what we saw because we literally never articulated to the other like this is the idea. We just like both knew. So it was so funny. Like when I think back, like when we would have dinners or like text each other things, it was like we were talking about the exact same thing without ever saying like, by the way, in case you weren't sure, to clarify, my point of view is the opportunity is blank. Like we never did that. <laughs> and like even when we came up with the voice for the skim, we were like, okay, we were roommates and we were like, you go into your room, I'll go into mine. Let's come back in an hour and see what we think the voice of the skim is. We each like wrote an article. We came back and like they were identical. It was actually like scary. We were like, oh, okay, so that's the voice. Like we clearly just both saw it, felt it, and like just understood it. Um, I remember for my birthday present, um, the year we launched, Danielle, my gift was like she had the logo made for the company, the original logo. And it's like we had never talked about what that would be. But when she showed it, I was like, that's exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, So we spitballed like the name. We spitballed like how to get it off the ground. And, you know, at one point we were like we should do it anonymously, kind of like Gossip Girl style. That would have been terrible. (laughs) But – the actual like idea, it was always like this idea of how do we break down information in a really digestible way. Interesting. I love that. And it seems like you guys were talking about this one idea like over months or maybe even over years. Was that the case? Yeah, years. So I, I love that because I think it shows a reality of starting a business. Like you have an idea, but you don't necessarily start the next day because you don't really know whether your timing is off or it just takes time to kind of bring it to life. So Fast forward a few years, you guys are still talking about this one idea. You officially quit your job and both of you in an interview said it was, you know, one of the most scariest days in your life. So I'm curious, like, take us back to that moment, because even for me, officially quitting is like one of the hardest parts of launching and starting a business. So I'd love to kind of hear both of your perspectives around that. It was terrifying. Also, we had kind of like two sides of the same coin when we thought about it. Um, the first part was that we were living in a very expensive city. We had about $2,000 saved up and we had an idea and that was kind of it. 
And we were leaving jobs uh, that we'd worked really hard to get and to move up within. And and it's not, you know, jobs that we disliked. It was a feeling of being frustrated that we could do more. We told our, our families about it and our parents really like to gloss over this part of the story that they were like, maybe wait, like maybe save up some more money. Maybe don't do this now. And they gave us, you know, a, a lot of emotional support. Um, I think they were really terrified for us. There there was no safety net financially. And I also think that they didn't really know what to do with us. <laughs> kind of like, this is kind of insane, but I guess you're going to have to like do it and figure it out. And then on the other side, we also realized we were in our mid-20s. You know, we didn't have, aside from ourselves, there there were no responsibilities. And I think we had a real kind of, in that way, maturity around our thinking that this would always be hard, but there wasn't going to be a time when it was going to be as simple as it was then. And so we, you know, planned as much as we could, meant we saved as much as we could, which was not a lot. We went grocery shopping, thinking that we couldn't afford to do takeout that much. We thought about like what our our side jobs would be, which also made no sense because they all involved working at night, which is when we ended up writing through the oh, night. So you, had, so you thought that you would have another side job just to help get extra funds? Right? Yeah. Um, specifically, Danielle, what was your side job going to be? Well, I have no musical ability, but I was like, everybody's a DJ. I could, I'm sure I could like yeah. figure out how to be a DJ because it's amazing. late at night, which would have been honestly probably like remixed Britney Spears on, on repeat. Like it would have been awful. I, I love Britney, but like my musical taste is, is not very diverse. And <laughs> That's funny. Oh my God. So, you know, both things were true at the same time that we saw this glaring opportunity was kind of like now or never. I think that the fact that there were two of us kind of like we we pushed each other to jump. And I think if it had just been either one of us solo, it probably would have been like, wow, we had this great idea and we never did it. And I think that there is a specific type of momentum and accountability when you are starting something with someone. It's funny. We I recently found and we put on our Instagram the my resignation letter. You know, now being on the other side is like an employer. Like if somebody <laughs> sent me this letter, I'd be like, "Who wrote this?" I'd be like, "Did ChatGPT write this for you?" Like it was so overly like formal and polite. And like, I was like, you know, I'm going to move on for a different endeavor, but like, I'm sure I will be back in a few weeks or a few months to, you know, circle back (laughs) and see if there's any opportunities. But basically, I mean, in hindsight, like, you know, we both believe in signs. Like there were two real signs. My, the show I was working on, they switched me to a show I didn't want to work on. Danielle had a promotion that she was expecting and it got delayed. And it was just both of us being like, we're like in the summer, things in the summer always like seem easier. (laughs) And we're like, like, okay, you know, it's July, like we could quit now. We have enough money saved to pay rent until election season. And an election season in news, everyone gets hired as freelancers. So we'll at least get hired like through the end of the year. So that was like Mm -hmm. the big game plan, um, which was not a very secure plan. But so it's funny because when I quit, I wouldn't tell anybody where I was going. I was like, I'll reach out to you in like a week. But I was like, I think I have something lined up. And we launched... I think I left my last day was a Thursday and we launched that Tuesday after. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. 
I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. I believe both of you guys was this before you left your jobs officially or shortly right after where you emailed like your entire network about your idea so what was that because that momentum is was I'm sure really pivotal that early in the business yeah I mean we got to work right after um like Danielle didn't you like have your last day on Monday like we like you had like no day off like we started I I think I had like a long weekend and then we started the list and we launched right after. And the yeah. deal with emailing people was like, we each got two vetoes of who we put on that list. And that was it. And it was back in the day where you could pull people's emails from Facebook. So it was really, yeah, it, it was really like a, you know, you really, we had to be very thoughtful about who were the two people that we really just could not stand to reach out about our venture. And other than that, it went on the list. I love that. And it's interesting. So you guys, you know, started right after you quit. There's also something really interesting about when there's not really like a plan B, like you have that fire under you, right? Like I'd love to maybe hear your perspective on that. I think it was the best thing that ever happened to us. You are the most productive and most like ambitious when you like have nothing and everything to lose kind of thing. And like, I think we, um, we, it, this had to work. Like there was no, like this doesn't work. It was like, this has to work. We like truly like willed it into fruition. You know, it was working harder, like in a way that's like not humanly possible to like recreate. Like we were, we just kind of survived off of adrenaline. Like, I don't even want to know what our cortisol levels were. I but know. Like, <laughs> we, we truly, I mean, we weren't sleeping. We were just running on adrenaline and it propelled us like that got us to a place of real scale within a few months. And a lot of press and a lot of networking that started to lead to being able to raise a, a small round of money. But it was like on com- like completely running on empty. But it was like, if we don't make this happen, like then we have failed and we don't have jobs to go back to or we have to figure out like how to do that. And I think we both knew that we didn't want to go back to what our careers were. So like it was about kind of figuring out what would a new life for ourselves be. And it's like, we really just wholeheartedly believed in this so much. And I think one of the gifts of the type of company that we are and the type of product we launched is we put something out into the universe and got immediate feedback on it. So even when you're, you know, you have that insecurity, like, is anyone going to like this? Or like, is anyone going to use this? Um, And even when like investors were like, no, not for me. Or like, well, like, 5,000 people signed up today and like we're, they're writing us saying like, this is the greatest thing in their life. So like something's working. And then, you know, that became 50,000, that became a hundred thousand. So it's like that, that 
those numbers going up so quickly was the most validating thing and I think truly helped us bring this to life. Yeah. And what I so appreciate about both you guys, and you touched on this, is just like the pure hustle you had in early days of just like legit grassroots marketing. Like you guys didn't have a lot of money. This was pre-raising that first small round. So tell us more about like the creative ways you guys built that traction and really got that like very early organic hockey stick growth. We were pretty annoying with <laughs> grassroots marketing, meaning um, if if you were one of our good friends, you definitely got a t-shirt in the mail that you know was kind of the first iteration of Skim Swag. And then we would have you send us pictures of you wearing it. So we really held you accountable to that like $25 return. And we would ask people to wear it to like, you know, work out, to go for a walk, any places that they went repeatedly. And we were really about what do people do every single day? What are their habits? Um, and so we thought about, you know, when you wake up, do you walk your dog, right? Like a, a skim, like dog leash later. We went to coffee shops. We would leave um, skim flyers. We snuck into Equinox bathrooms and got like promptly asked to leave and would just leave flyers. We would, I remember like, you know, my mom, there was like a block party and she printed out like stands with skim posters, just really basic things like that. We would host like viewing parties for debates um, an election night that that first few months that we launched. And it was really just like four people. But you know, we would take pictures like it was an exit poll that there were so many people around. And we just kept it up. And we invited people to kind of get in on it. And from there, we started or, or really the idea of a ambassador program formed around us, which was mainly women who were looking to get more involved in entrepreneurship or who really loved feeling uh, empowered from getting really involved around what was going on in, in the wider world. And they wanted to help. And that led to, you know, an over 30,000 person brand ambassador program that we spent the next, you know, eight years scaling and, and iterating on. I actually did not know your Skin Ambassadors program was so early in your journey. So maybe can you share more about that? And when you're like, oh gosh, there's so much opportunity here, because I'm sure that kind of unlocked the next level of the brand and the newsletter. Yeah, it really helped us understand like what does loyalty to a brand mean and how do you measure that? And, you know, over time, like we iterated on that program. So it's actually not how we define kind of loyalists anymore, but it was very much a part of our grassroots story. And it happened so organically. I mean, truly, like we sent out the first daily skim on a Tuesday, July 18th. Like from there, like within a week, we, you know, people are replying to the email saying, I love this. Thank you. Like you sound just like my college roommate. Like Debbie, is that you? Like it was, you know, all these kind of pen pals. We, were, we would respond. And like, I remember, I, you know, I literally would respond on my phone when it says, you know, on an email from your phone, like sent from my iPhone, people would reply and be like, that's so cute to make it look like it's a real person. And I was like, no, it's literally me in a taxi, like <laughs> you like responding. responding. Anyway, so we had these people writing in and, and somebody said, I'm like a brand ambassador for you and we love our puns. So we were like, you're a skin ambassador. So then all of a sudden we just had people calling themselves skin ambassadors and then we put structure around it. But Really, the, you know, when we would quantify it, 
the year over year, about 19% of our annual growth came from the referrals of our ambassadors. So we didn't do paid marketing, you know, money to do that. This was before, honestly, like growth marketing, like was the thing it became, but you know, roughly about 20% of our growth came from purely word of mouth of people just loving this brand from all over and telling people about it and competing for swag to to tell more people about it. It was an extraordinary way to grow and a way to kind of really build a movement around our brand. And then, you know, it kind of reached its peak and, you know, it's a, how we, you know, think about loyalty is different today, but it was, you know, such a part of the magic secret sauce of how we began. I love that. That was my question in terms of like, how were they incentivized? And it seems like they were behind both of you and the brand itself, but the swag was kind of like a cherry on top you know, at the I'll time. Say Danielle and I were very much, I don't, I mean, I don't think we were the incentive. Um, I think actually like the community that they found each other through was amazing. I mean, you would hear stories of people, you know, I remember like somebody had like an adoption, somebody was a lawyer and helped her. People were meeting up in cities on their own. So then we would create these like ambassador events just to like be like, meet at this bar. Was it the lost tux that someone found? Oh my on God, an this was, it was a wedding dress or a tux. Somebody yeah. left their tux or wedding dress, I can't remember, on a plane. It was like at the like Delta desk in, you know, terminal blank, like at this airport as any ambassador flying through. One of them was, picked it up, got it to them. Like just crazy. Like, you know, I remember we went to um, to CES one year and if you've, if you've never been, it's you know, so many people, it was impossible to get a taxi. There were like, Uber wasn't allowed yet at the airport. So you just like, you literally could not get, it would take like an hour and a half to get out of the airport. We didn't know that. So we like put on our, you know, blasted our ambassadors. Anybody live in Vegas? Somebody like came and picked us up and like took us to our hotel. <laughs> it was just like, oh my God. and it's like, of course we trusted it because it was like this community. It, it was amazing. I love that. And then at the time, what platform were you guys using to connect everyone? Well, this is why we evolved the program. We were using Facebook. Okay. Um, we were using Facebook groups. I mean, I love it. It's scrappy, right? Like sometimes we overcomplicate things. And that's why I asked is like, you guys were just managing that and you guys were quite big, I believe at the time and creating that momentum. But I would envision now fast forward, you know, 12, 13 years later, it'd have to change. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, so much of that ethos in in the skim and its its mission and culture have stayed really true. And and obviously the ways that we show up in our audiences' lives um have changed, but that experience um was something truly special. And I, I think going back to, you know, the original kind of question we went off of, but like, what was it like to quit? I think that there was a real kind of gut instinct that we both had that this was our chance to do something that was going to take us on a really like incredible ride. I love it. And what you were saying, and we'll go into how your fundraising experience was. I mean, you guys mentioned you got over a hundred no's, but you had your customer, you know, your readers sending you emails being like, this is amazing. So you knew intuitively, like we are on something special here. So I'm curious, because even at that time, email wasn't like how email is today, right? Like now it's so prevalent. So how did you guys really, you know, push through and find the right investors? Was it just a quantity game at that time? Or how did you eventually raise that round that you guys needed to kind of live your life and continue to get this off the ground? I think a few different things. The, the first 
was we needed to get better at telling our story. We needed to get clearer, more concise. I think that that is where, you know, we we went into this being both founders and and co-CEOs. And I think that that's where a little bit we needed to show even the early days that we could tell and inspire the the founding story, but we also had an operating plan. And maybe maybe not with the the first round, um, but definitely subsequent rounds of funding. I think that first round was investing in us and and our relationship and our ability to take something from literally our couch into a real, you know, product and company. And then the test was, you know, can we scale that? Um, Can we scale ourselves? Can we start hiring a team and can we grow? So we needed to really get very good at understanding that we knew the market inside and out, but we really needed to translate that for the type of investors that we were going after, which were venture seed investors who didn't come necessarily from media, who didn't understand the trends that we saw. And I remember you know, sitting on a bench uh, in the in the village uh, when we had just gotten like, a, you know, probably like the 10th no in a row. And we started just pitching to each other and making it much more conversational and thinking about what was it, you know, about what we just said that resonated. And we really took that spirit. Um, and I remember redoing it and bringing that you know, slight tweak, I think both in confidence, um, but also just in in kind of um, starting from a place of this is why we see an opportunity and this is why we are the right ones to do it. And here is, you know, the um, growth that we're seeing so far. All of that sounds very rational, but at the time we had no idea that, that we were going to get funded. We just, uh, every day was pitching again and again and again, and then going to drop off flyers and talking to our community members and then writing the newsletter and then pitching again and again and again. I think that, you know, the the benefit of it was that you started to hear versions of the word no so many times it, it really stops losing meaning. And I also think that it really forced us to focus on growth, organic growth, like and putting out a good product because those were the only things that we could control. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I know, you know, I believe it was two years in, you didn't monetize or you brought in your first sponsors a little bit later. So how did you think? So the focus was let's build this thing, continue to build that momentum, prove our growth. And then how did you kind of think through monetization at that you point? really did your homework. I'm impressed you. <laughs> I'm, I've been following you guys. I love it. I'm fascinated. <laughs> so I think that one of like the hallmarks to why we had success is that we had tremendous focus. And I actually, I really credit like our very first investors, um, like institutional investors or homebrew ventures and Hunter and Satya who, who run it, like they come from product backgrounds. So they were like, you have to have focus. We were like, we have focus. We're so focused. They're like, no, like focus, like a product person. And I'm like, I, I don't know what you mean. And they're like, if there is anything on your plate in front of you that is not directly tied to growing this business, you're doing the wrong thing. And we decided early on um, that with, with like, honestly, with their help, because we were you know new to all of this, you can't reach growth scale and monetization scale at the exact same time. Like you have to choose one or the other, like at least in the beginning. And we were like, we got to do growth scale because we need to show 
how many millennial women like this brand and product are speaking to. So we focused on growth. From day one, even before we took in outside investment, we had brands approaching us being like, you know, we'd love to advertise. The honest truth is like we had no capacity to do those deals because we're trying to raise money, trying to grow the brand, you know, through um, word of mouth and then writing. So we just said we're not accepting advertisement. And nobody likes being told that they can't do something more than brands. And so it actually, we created kind of a scarcity interest in in our company where people were like, you can't get in the scam, like even if you wanted to. That was a happy accident. Um, I I wish I could say we were strategic about it, but that was a happy accident. But we did say no once we took in institutional money to anyone trying to work with us until we reached a certain level of scale. Um, And if I remember correctly, it was probably when we were like 200,000 users, something like that. Um, More. Maybe more. You know what? You're right. It was like 500,000. Yeah. And that is when we then started to work with our very first partners and our our first three partners were JP Morgan Chase or Chase, actually, the commercial side, uh, the NBA um, and the PGA. Um, And we purposely chose those categories because everybody was waiting for us to work with a beauty brand. We wanted to work with brands that you wouldn't expect needed to reach women. And a finance brand was super important to us because we all know what the stats look like around financial literacy for women and how women have been left behind in generating wealth. It was, we were like obsessed with like, how do we get sports involved? How do we get finance involved? And those are our very first brand partners. I love how you guys were approaching it from a different angle and how you waited a little bit longer. And even you know, what your investors said about focusing on what is really just going to move the needle. Like I'm already mentally making a note for our business. Cause then if you just really focus, you're like, all right, this is a waste of time. This is a waste of time. So it sounds so simple, but can really help you stay kind of focused on those next steps. So I'm also curious, you, you know, you guys have both been co-CEOs in the business. I'd love to hear from your perspective. I've heard people's experiences. Some of them really work. Some of them are like, it's been quite challenging. So how have you guys kind of fostered this relationship? Because I know early on, in a positive way, you guys were very open and transparent about the partnership. And I want to talk about this because a lot of people, including myself in my own business, I didn't have these open conversations. So I think a lot of women can actually learn from the way you guys set that up. Well, first of all, I, I think, you know, I speak for for both of us that it is really rare. And it is something that I think is really hard to know if if it's going to work out in the beginning. And we, you know, going back to one of the the hallmarks of kind of our story is that we didn't know anything different. Neither one of us had a business background. Neither one of us was kind of like the tech one or the product one. We had a really similar skill set, which at times was was tough, but also was really helpful because we needed to figure out things and learn them together. And I think especially as, you know, two young women, first-time entrepreneurs in a very male-dominated field, it was honestly really like it was a confidence boon to me to have someone right next to me who was learning the exact same thing at the exact same time. And, And between the two of us, you know, one of us was always kind of the better one at that moment of, of faking it till you make it. I also think that on the management side internally, um, we had so much to learn and there was so much to do that having, you know, two extremely dedicated people is just invaluable. 
I am reading this fact that our PR team <laughs> sent us, which I, which I didn't know, but apparently a, a Harvard Business Review study of 87 public companies led by co-CEOs found that almost 60% were more profitable than peers who had wow. one person in the top spot. And that is literally the only time I have used data to back that up. But I thought you it was really just walk around with that. Wow. Yeah. But- for us, it, it's a deeply personal um, choice. We went into this as partners. We went into this as equal partners. And, you know, that's that's been the choice that we made again and again and again. And we were very clear with anyone who worked with us or, or works, you know, for us over the past 11 years that, hey, this is different, um, but it works for us. And it's how we've we've chosen to do things. I also think that, you know, so much of being an entrepreneur is lonely and isolating. And there are really high degrees of burnout and anxiety and all sort of, you know, issues that, that go along with being crazy enough to go on, you know, your own adventure that I think having someone who understands what you're going through when you're too exhausted to talk um, is really important. That being said, the only way where it works for us is that there's trust. And it's a really hard thing to build. It, it's a really hard thing to maintain. And it's a hard thing to find. So it's a, it's a long way of saying it is, I, I think, been so core to the success of the company. It's also not something that we can say is definitely right for anyone. I would say, though, that when you find something that works for you, if it's unorthodox, like, just go with it. And, and I think there needs to be a lot more leeway around what organizations look like, especially when we want to have a diverse group of, of entrepreneurs and, and leadership who are going to be starting companies, hopefully at all different points in their life and, and their families and their days are going to look different. And so leadership and organizational structure should also look a little bit different too. I love that. What you mentioned about, you know, you guys have been doing this for gosh, 13 years now, has it been? No, Maybe not more? that. Um, 11. 11. Okay. I, I rounded up a little bit. Still, still Don't quite a us. long time. I know. <laughs> but I'm sure in entrepreneurship years, it, it seems short, but long years. at the same yeah. time, right? You're like, what has happened the past decade? I'm sure it's been wild. But you know what I've been realizing, I'm just only a few years in my journey is like the loneliness, the burnout, the anxiety, like that is definitely there. And the ones that kind of sustain the longevity like you guys is like, how do you manage that on a day to day? And you mentioned, you know, having a co like co-CEO, co-founder definitely helps, you know, someone really understands a day to day because it's not like you can talk to your friends. It's really hard to articulate kind of the emotional tolls that you might be going through. Um, so I can see that being a huge competitive advantage of having somebody just truly on your team who who gets it. And, you know, outside of that, I'm actually curious, like, how have you guys kind of sustained running this business and being the leaders of it for so long? Because I know it's not easy. And so much of it is staying in the game, right? So outside of having both of you guys, any other tips that you can share for entrepreneurs who are just getting started, who are like, all right, I'm in this for the long game. It's already hard. What do I need to do to make sure I don't die by the end of it. I think a few things um, with sort of a caveat. Honestly, like unless you are talking to somebody like in it with you, they're not nobody's gonna understand. Not the best spouse, not the best family member, not the best therapist. Like yeah. they're not gonna understand. So I think one, like accepting that. 
Um, I think, you know, over the course, like we have both gone to therapy separately, but like, um, but uh, to, you know, have an outlet. But I also will say like, I'll speak for myself, but like, I love my therapist. She doesn't understand like this. Like if I had explained work stress, you know, things that she would say are like not actually like possible, but it is still an outlet. I actually, I think for both of us, like me more than Danielle, because when we started this, like I never worked out ever. And like Danielle at least like had, but like the physical activity and like having that blocked and protected in our calendars is saved us. Um, like it is, it's the only time that my brain will like turn off and you got to find the right outlet for you. But it's like the one time where I'm like not thinking about all the things. And, you know, I think Danielle once said it well to us, like part of what makes a really good CEO, a really good CEO is that you can context switch quickly and a lot. And you can go from being like public facing to talking to investors, to dealing with an HR crisis, to you know, whatever is like you're leaning into in the day-to-day product, whatever it is, we can do that really, really well, but almost too well. Like it's not healthy for your brain to like have to be almost like in a fight or flight situation at all times. So we've become the most boring, but rigid people and that our schedules are like really set in stone. And when we exercise or go to therapy, like is really, really put um, into our calendar as like sacred time. Don't touch it unless the Pope's coming into town. Don't cancel over it. And I really, really, really recommend that. Um, and it's, it's hard to say hard to put into words like how important that is. I have also found like I'm not somebody who journals, but when I when things are particularly stressful, I find like literally just writing out what is stressful is just the equivalent of like saying it to somebody so it's like off your chest, but sure. even if it's just, like having written it out. No, that that resonates a lot and I I needed to hear you say that because I am not one that prioritizes movement. And, you know, you can always say the excuse. We're busy. Like in this world, you can always work, right? I go on a walk. That's movement. Like that's not not like doing anything. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. But even being protective about that. That's a big improvement from 11 years ago. (laughs) It's, It's progress. But I think also there's, it's really about just making the time to, um, get out of your head. And I feel like I really can't do that unless I'm physically exhausting myself in some way. Like it just does not turn off or reading. I I think does that for both of us too. Carly went through phases. I think we're cooking really did that for her too. So I think trying new things is, is part of it, but I think it's key to have a good support system and to go to the basics, right? Like what, what actually allows your mind to rest is that, um, physical activity. Is it, uh, sleep? Um, I don't advocate. Yeah. Uh, like the, the lifestyle that we had to adopt for the first two years or so of running the company was, was necessary, but I don't think that it is healthy or advisable to, to, lead your life with, with that amount of kind of sleep deprivation. I also think that one thing that we really talk about and, and became even more central when we were running the company during a pandemic is that some people save lives for a living every single day. We don't do that. Doesn't mean that what we do isn't, you know, something that we're super passionate about. It is, but 
there there has to be a, a very big dose of perspective. And that's something that I think gets easily left behind uh, when you talk about entrepreneurs. The other thing, you know, and I credit this, I remember Alexa Von Tobel um, gave us this advice. It was like, the longer you do it, it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. It's just that the things that were hard are now easy. And I remember being really kind of destroyed by that advice and was like, that is so not helpful. But now it's now I find it actually very soothing where I'm like, if it feels hard, it's just because I haven't done it yet or because it really is hard. And either way, you know, this is something that is new and, and I'm going to learn it. And and I think the last thing that, that I would say, the piece of advice, and I just gave this to someone in my family who, you know, got a new job offer and they were really like, wow, am I ready for this? And I was like, no one really knows what they're doing, honestly. Like we're all kind of figuring it out. And I don't mean to lean into the imposter syndrome part, but just more that like, you know, you kind of have to embrace being uncomfortable. It's the only way that you're going to grow. I love that. And, you know, a huge inspiration for me finally taking the leap, like 12 years of my journey was talking to women like you doing this podcast because I'm like, oh, no one's ever ready. No one has it figured out. And I have friends who are, you know, running significantly larger businesses of mine who I see behind the scenes. And I'm like, we're all yeah, dealing with the same idea. stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but at a different scale, but it's all the yeah. fundamentally like we're, everyone is figuring something out. And I love that, you know, you mentioned Danielle, just like being comfortable in the uncomfort because that will never change. And even when I'm dealing with a difficult moment in the business, I at least get to reflect back on these interviews and be like, all right, it's part of it. It's part of the journey. I'm not going to freak out. And if it was easy, then everybody would do it. Right. So like I tell myself that to console it's myself. It's good that you have this podcast to, to do. It's it. like, like therapy. therapy. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know people are like, how do you still do your podcast with your business? I'm like, it's a creative outlet. I get to help, you know, share stories. And it's, it's helpful for me because it's truly lonely, right? No one understands like I go to an acupuncturist. I try to still do the basics. Like sleep is important. Yeah. Yeah, Like whatever I need to do. And, you know, a constant theme that I hear is like, can you just wind down earlier in the evening? And I don't feel like I'm stressed out, but you know, you're always thinking I'm responding to an email, like your iPhone example. Like I respond randomly to customers and they're like, wait, is that you Yasmin? I'm like, yeah, it's me. But like, it's hard because nobody understands. I hate when people say that because that's like telling somebody having a panic attack to calm down. It's like, thank you for that really helpful advice. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's instead, how do you have, how do you have more moments in your day where you're literally lowering your cortisol? And like, that is a, that is like for your health and like, give it like gives your brain a rest. And so whether it is cooking, taking a walk, doing, you know, a soul cycle class, like whatever it is, like knitting, like whatever, find your thing that just like where you zone out. You, everyone has something that makes them zone out and maybe you zone out enough that you take a nap and that's great. That's true. But I love that. Cause it's like, how do you build it in the day? Cause we're not ever turning off. It's not like we yeah. have a nine to five. So right. no, I appreciate that. And even Danielle, what you were saying about perspective, I think like sometimes we can get so stuck in the nitty gritty that as a CEO, like it's not even beneficial for you to have that mindset. Cause you have to be able to zoom out. So I'm even realizing, Oh shit, I have to take breaks. Cause it's not good for the business. And I think, I can't remember which one of you said this um, in an interview, but you were like, you know what? I realized I had to take more breaks. I had to take vacation because if I'm not well, then the business isn't well, you know, cause sometimes you forget about yourself, especially when you're in the early days and you know, you're learning what to do, but 
There's also, you know, I do think we're in a different era right now where, you know, self-care has had, had its moment. Sure. I will say, like, there was almost like an, a little bit of kind of feeling cool to be like, look how much I'm yeah. suffering for this business and like how hard I can push myself. And it's a very like old, like I will say, like kind of even male mentality. Um, whereas now, you know, I never would have mentioned therapy on a podcast five years ago, ever, never. Um, so I think now we're like, we're definitely, we should embrace the fact that like a lot of societal norms have changed and like you don't win any badges by saying you like wear yourself out and burge yourself out. It actually shows you're not making, you're not a strong decision maker if you're doing that. I love that. God, we need to put that on like a billboard. It's so true. I come from the banking day. So I'm like, the harder you work, the shit you get done, but you start a business and you're like, all right, those hours I used to pull, it's very different. Like you can do it for a little, but it's not sustainable. And I'm so glad we're talking about self-care and it's like, how do we shift building and, and running successful businesses in a different way? And by and I, the way, like there, it's not to say like, I really do not like when people take that a different way and are like, you know, it's not about working like too hard. Like you want to get something off the ground, like you got to work harder than you ever worked in your life, but you have to have the stamina to sprint when you need to sprint. And I love that. Not have to sprint when you don't need to sprint. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about like, giving an example of a lion, like they're chilling, they're resting, but then they go hard when it's like yeah. time to go. And I'm like, that yeah, is it. And sometimes, take some good naps. I know I see them and they look so relaxed. I'm like, I, so I always think about that, like being a lion, you know, you just like, you take your breaks, but you go hard. And that's a great point. And I even share that with my team. You know, it's like, we, this is part of it. Like we have sprints, but then there's times that we're going to rest. And that's just the name of the game. I think if you want to build something like incredible and big, which is not for everyone. So I'm actually curious if we can maybe get your perspective around who do you think shouldn't be an entrepreneur or kind of take this path? That might be a controversial question. So no, it's not. I think that if you don't consider yourself to be a resilient person, you're going to have a really hard time being an entrepreneur. I think that's probably the biggest thing for me because everything else I think you learn, you know, from a skill set perspective or, or you have the ability to learn. I also, I would add, and like, I think this is controversial. If you are not good at selling yourself, you will have a really hard time being an entrepreneur. And I know a lot of people who are like brilliant and have, you know, are amazing ideas and, you know, can work with product teams or tech teams or, you know, revenue teams but they don't know how to sell themselves in a room, they should not be like in charge of a company. They could be like a great, you know, COO. They could be a great like top executive, but you need to be able, no matter what type of business you're starting, like you need to be able to sell that business. And to sell that business, like you need to be able to brag and you need to be able to kind of channel a different personality to do that sometimes. And it makes it really uncomfortable for those who are not, who don't like that. Like, it doesn't mean everybody has to be an extrovert. We're actually both very introverted, but you mm. have to be able to like put that mask on um, because no matter whatever type of company you have, in the end, you're going to have a customer or a need for funding or a need to True. get something from somebody and you need to be able to sell. I love that. And you guys are so passionate about the mission. So I'm sure that helps a little bit. If it's something that you're not fully passionate about, it will make it so much totally. harder. But Carly and Danielle, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. I know we went a little bit over, but this was amazing. Maybe we'll do a part two in the future, but you guys are both incredible, big fans. Thank you so, so much for just sharing your wisdom today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.